This is the Punk Theology Podcast, and it's 2021. This would be season four, episode number nine. Near-death experiences? It's not what you think. Nor maybe it is. In this episode, Kristen, Steve, and Chuck... I enter a little bit late. I would be your host, Russ Shaw, excommunicated by technology. Uh, Today on the podcast, we had a little technical difficulties. Not going to lie, all right? But not to worry, sound or audio quality wasn't the issue. It was connectivity, Zoom operator error, and or glitchiness. We lost the beginning of this show. Yeah, we lost Chuck's story, some of my story. Uh, it's like God, the universe, whatever your worldview, just slammed on the brakes and said, All right, ladies first, motherfuckers. together thing right good luck russ what's really bizarre (laughs) about these things is is when somebody's missing Uh, the dynamics change oh i can tell immediately yeah can you Uh uh-huh yep yep yeah russ when you if you listen to this no offense (laughs) russ just has really bad coping with certain topics and Uh this is kind of one of them like he's Uh really bad at letting shit sit and just letting it be yeah 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 not real comfortable in that well that's why that's like like i said god almighty took him out yeah well and it's just i mean it's fine it's just where he's at so it's no just... it's true though it is because it's just different for every person mm-hmm. i thought it was interesting that he uh, a couple of weeks ago he said that he only had two pieces he only has two parts of them which i thought was interesting because it's so not true he has so yep. many parts he's oh, just yeah, so no yeah. He doesn't know him yet. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe now he'll know if he hears this. He'll be yeah. like, what? <laughs> I do? <laughs> One of them is a drag queen. Just really? don't tell anybody. <laughs> oh, you're not like for real and for true, just like in there. You are completely I'm... wrong. <laughs> no, I'm totally right. <laughs> As I shake my head, yes. I'm totally right. Anyway, okay. You're so... down. Near-death experiences. Okay, so we're doing we're doing my near-death experiences. Okay, so I'm going I'm going with the first one, the first the big one, the one that really really fucked everything up in my life. Part of what part of what is just a nightmare of trauma in general is that you're living life normally for years and years, weeks and weeks, days and days, and everything is the same until one day something crazy happens, and then nobody ever talks about it. <laughs> Like everybody just to pretends that we're going to go back to life as normal. And that thing that happened definitely didn't change your reality and didn't give you any new insight into anything in the world. And that was, that was kind of my, my first near death experience. And I was six and I had Derek will, I'm sure Derek has his own specific memories of this happening because he experienced it from his point of view, of course, but I had a huge tumor on my spine that was the size of a softball. And it was just embedded in the nerves in the lower part of my back. And we lived in North Idaho and didn't have a whole lot of medical resources. And so my parents 
they talked about life flighting me to Seattle, but they decided that it would probably just be better if my parents were to take me instead. So this was back in the early nineties. And so, I mean, God, thinking about it now, medical, medical stuff just feels so primitive back in the nineties versus what it is now, especially for children. Yeah. So, but I went to children's hospital. My parents drove me out there. Just my mom and my dad. And, and they, everybody just assumed that I was going to die. I just remember my parents preparing me for death because they didn't really know what was going to happen. They didn't really know what it was. They didn't know if it was, you know, it's like a cancerous thing that was all through my body. They didn't know if I was going to be able to walk or if they would even be able to remove it or if I was just going to die. Oh, there's Russ. He's connecting. He's back. So how, how old were you, Christian? I was six. I six? Was six. Yeah. So Russ, Chuck is recording. Is that all good? Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. And I'm in the middle, I'm in the middle of my monologue. So this is about me. Okay, <laughs> cool. <laughs> he moved him on to Hollywood squares too. Now he's on the lower section. Yeah. He got bumped all the way down to the end. Oh, yeah. weird. <laughs> I'm still <laughs> in the same place I was on my screen. It's okay. So oh, what are, are you saying now? Anyway, Kristen. So six years old. Okay. So Russ, just to catch you up, six years old, I have a, a giant tumor on my spine and I'm in children's hospital, Seattle in the early nineties. Right. And so they go to take this out and I don't remember, I don't know how many hours I was under, um, but they administered, administered the anesthesia and, and I remember going under and they remember not being under. Uh, I remember not being able to feel my body. I, I mean, like not being able to move my body. You know that feeling of sleep paralysis you get sometimes? Yeah, yeah. Or like when a demon is sitting on your chest and you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't scream. Um, I remember them, the feeling of them cutting open my abdomen and I have a nine inch incision on, on my abdomen and pulling out my intestines. <laughs> so gross but I remember the sensation of my body cavity being completely empty and and not being able to move it didn't hurt it just was a lot of pressure yeah and and I just remember like this internal scream inside of me just screaming for hours and hours and hours and and it was just I, I remember wanting to die like just being ready for this to be over because it was such a horrible feeling. Cause I could feel hands inside of me, like many, many hands. It wasn't just one doctor. It was like, I don't even know how many people were in there. And uh, they, they cut the tumor out and they patched me back together and they put my guts back in and they stitched me back up. And then I do remember, I remember the very first coherent thought that I had was when I was back in just like a regular room and my cousin had come in and he had bought this pen for me as a gift. And it had a whole bunch of different colors on it. Like one of those pens that you could push different buttons and different colors would show up. And I just remember him saying, he was like, I can't wait for her to wake up because I want to give this to her. And I remember thinking in my head, I was like, ah, motherfucker, I've been awake for hours. <laughs> I didn't actually say motherfucker because I was a Quaker child. I was six years old and, you know, from Idaho. So. But like, oh, no, you, essentially, you, that's what it translated to. You like, yeah, it, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And my motherfucking cousin, he was such a cutie too. He was a year younger than me and he was just really, really sweet. So I, I remember that he was there with my grandma and I remember eventually my body kind of thawing out, 
but I was never fully physically present ever again. And, and that's something I've been exploring now, trying to be able to get back into my body and actually feel things again. Because I mean, even certain sensations, like, like I know that I love my family and I know that I love my husband and my friends, but I know it cognitively. I don't know it physically. I don't know what it actually feels like to feel that physical sensation of love. Because once you've been literally gutted like that, you don't want to be in your body ever again. And, and I should have died. And I mean, so what, I'm 34 years old now. So it's been almost 30 years since this has happened. So I've spent 28 years kind of sort of wishing I had died. <laughs> but I had other near that experiences. That was just the first one. So that was the... So do you remember the reaction of those that were in the room, like your family or when you came out of it? Yeah, it was awful. Everybody thought it was a miracle. It was awful. I just remember everybody being so happy. Yeah, that was... Could you see the concern that were that registered on their face? Oh, I don't could, remember could that. Could it happen? I don't remember that. I just remember... I remember before going into the surgery, sitting with my mom, and she she had these tapes that, that went through Bible verses, singing them. And the one that she kept repeating over and over again was Joshua 1, 9, the have I not commanded you be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged for the Lord, your God will be with you forever and ever. And it was just like drilled into my head before I went into surgery. And I remember the distress on her face. I knew she, I could tell she thought I was going to die, that she knew that she was just going to hand her kid over to these surgeons and uh, that it was, everything was going to be horrible. So when I came back out and not only was I patched back together and alive, but I didn't even have spine damage. I didn't even have a whole lot of nerve damage. I was able to walk. That was not what they were expecting. They really thought that I was going to be in the hospital for months and months doing rehab. They weren't sure if I was going to have control over my bowels. And I, I mean, you know, on, on the outside, I looked great. I looked perfect. I mean, I think I was only there for a week and a half or so. And then once I was healthy enough and they knew that there wasn't anything that had spread anything further through my body and that they had gotten everything from the tumor, uh, they let me go home and nothing in my life was ever the same. But the narrative going home, especially for the church that we grew up in, I remember coming home and everybody just like singing and praying and praising God and laying hands on me and talking about how it had been a miracle. And I was very bitter about that. (laughs) Have you ever, um, so like you split there. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. You you have to. Yep. So have, are you aware of that part? Um, awareness. Yes. Loose connection, reintegration. No, there's the, what I used to have towards that part was just pure hatred like when I would think about, uh, I think it was like three, four years ago when I first became really aware of this part. And when I was, I was going through my own intensive therapy at the time and my husband and I, we, we drove to Glacier and it's a four hour drive from our house. And, and I just remember sitting in the passenger seat the whole time. And I told him, I'm going to try to contemplate actually having compassion for this younger part of me. He was like, okay, whatever you're a therapist, like you're weird. You do your thing. I was like, okay. I just remember staring out the window for four hours, trying to contemplate having compassion for this child. And all I could think about was putting a bullet in her head. 
I was like, she is just such a bitch and she's just the worst and she needs to die and she won't. So and that made me mad. Who's her, who's her protector? Now, probably the most maternal part of myself, which is interesting because yeah. I'm not a mom. And I am not a mom for very, very specific reasons. But also, I mean, I think a, a big reason is just because I, I can't. I have too many parts of myself that I need to take care of before I could ever actually take care of another child outside of me. I'm way too fractured. And well, you're, you're smarter than I am. <laughs> <laughs> but how old were you when you had kids? Oh, I was a baby. Yeah, that's what I figured. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't yeah. even aware of my parts until a couple <laughs> years ago. <laughs> my kids are 10 and eight now, so. I always um, knew I, was, I wasn't gonna have kids. I. Have, <clears throat> Have you ever talked to the protector and found out why it feels it has that job? She's still developing, if that makes sense. I think okay. I think yep. having any sense of protection at all is new to me. So either, I mean, either my protection has just been like a stone cold wall yeah. where I don't connect with anybody, including myself. <laughs> well, it's it's a fireproof, it's a foolproof fireproof thing. It's really... It feels very handy to put that up. Yeah. How old is your protector? Mm, she's probably a little bit older than I am. Maybe in her late 30s. I mean, yeah. yeah. 37, 38. Not a lot older than me, just a little bit. Enough that she's had a couple kids and that they've really, really, really ground her into the dirt. And she still loves them. Like, she's, she's that kind of a mom. That's just hanging in there. And, and that's why she's still developing because yeah. I think that's just how all parents are. Yep. I don't know well, what the hell they're doing. I'm 65 and I'm still developing. Mm -hmm. yeah. See, but that's amazing that you know that. Yeah, and I didn't until I was 50. No, hell, I probably didn't know until I was 60. Yeah? So yeah. you've known the last five years? I mean, the last five years, I mean, that's, that's, that is saying something. It really is. Honestly, Steve, that's incredibly impressive. Well, it's not been fun, but no, it Looking back, be. And, and we talked about earlier, um, when you come to the realization that everybody's fucked up, mm -hmm. me, that was, that was assuring because I thought I was the only one, oh. you know, forever. And you thought that I, for well, like 50, 60 is. years? Everybody is. Yeah. I thought I was, Ugh. I thought it was just me. I still have I, those For me, that was real freeing. You know, and it doesn't matter who I talk to. You know, I had whiskey and a cigar last Wednesday with the pastor of my church and we're sitting there just the two of us and he's as fucked up as I am and we both admitted it we're sitting there on, the, on his back deck just saying you know we are really fucked up <laughs> <laughs> and that's 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 so calming and assuring and it, oh, like, it would, it would. all of us guys mm -hmm. you know not have that pretense well I got my shit together what's the matter with you because that's kind of what I was that's kind of the way I was raised mm -hmm. to just pretend yeah. Good old CMA. Yeah. 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 And I know, I know those guys had, I know as I've gotten some distance from them, I know their issues. You know, I can see them as some of the ways they acted out. But anyway. It's not hard. Without that, you're not, like, don't be vulnerable. That's kind of how I grew up. Just knowing that and being sort of on the outside of it, you know, trying to get saved or whatever and being God's good graces, but still knowing I'm, you know, I just couldn't fake it for too long. 
you know, it just didn't work out for me. But that seemed to be the the narrative is like, don't be vulnerable. Don't show that you're, you know, broken. Well, once you show your vulnerabilities, people can use that against you. That's the problem. Yeah. I mean, that's why talking about it is so scary. I mean, even for me as a therapist, it's not my favorite thing to publicly say anything, especially something that can be recorded because I don't know how that could be used against me. I really don't. And I have, I have a fair number of my own mental emotional issues and that I'm, that I'm pretty open with, with my clients if they ask me, but that's not something that I advertise on a regular basis because there is this bizarre stigma that if you have a mental illness, then you shouldn't be responsible for taking care of others, which is insane. Yeah. (laughs) Cause it, it should be the opposite. It should be the people who have suffered the most. Yeah. You understand the ins and outs of it and know what it's like to live with it on a daily basis and have figured out how to be able to find some kind of a balance. Those are the ones that need to be taking care of others. Yeah, absolutely. It's my yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was the reason I was asking about that. The uh, what was the reaction of your family when you mm-hmm. woke up from that surgery was I think we I know I react a lot differently based upon the reaction of those around me. I was five years old and had a severe asthma attack. You'd think medicine in the 90s was bad. Mm-hmm. Try the early 60s. Oh, I believe it. They I had no it. fucking idea what to do. Uh-huh. I mean, I couldn't really breathe. My lips were turning blue. Every every breath was a struggle. And I, and I remember um, my mom and my dad's sheer terror. And then I remember the nurse or the doctor, I believe, looking like, well, we don't know what to do. You know, we have no idea. No, because they didn't. No. They didn't actually really know. No. I wasn't, you know, and it's weird because I wasn't afraid of dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was only five or six. I just wanted to be able to breathe. That was what was uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, it's like that commercial where uh, the guy's underwater and he's trying to get to the surface and he's he's way underwater and he's struggling and struggling to get to the surface so he can breathe. That's kind of the way it is with a severe asthma attack. And I've only had one since then that bad. But now you've got all kinds of meds to know to treat it but yeah it was but that was what that was hardest for me was seeing the reaction of my mom and my dad in a hospital because you could see that they were helpless yeah yeah because yeah. you look at them to fix it oh yeah no and then when they they don't know and i think that was also something that was just pretty darn clear i mean at least through through my experiences that nobody nobody thought i was going to live right. including the surgeons and it's like and I don't remember the specifics of like what, what actually it looked like on their face, but the, the feeling, it was the feeling of helplessness and despair that this wasn't going to go anywhere good. And that, like you said, when you look to other people, especially your caregivers, when you look to them yeah. for reassurance that yeah. you are somehow going to make it through and they don't have it, no. you, you go somewhere. And that's kind of what Chuck was talking about. That's where you fracture. That's where you split. And that's where you have to split because if nobody outside of you can provide any sense of protection or care or support for you in the middle of whatever you're going through, then you have to find something internally in order to be able to do that. And I know for me, fracturing in that moment, the the thing that saved me was just disconnecting from my body and treating it as though that it was the first line of defense and I could throw it out there and it could get, get chewed up and the other parts of me could retreat and feel somewhat protected. And so you find your own protector if it's not outside of you, you find it inside of you. Do you, have you always remembered that time? Uh-huh. Yeah. It's not my first memory, but it's one of the first few. It's, uh, 
yeah, of a hand. Was it like an out of body kind of thing when you? It became that eventually because I remember going under when I was when I was put under anesthesia. It was first person point of view, and when I came out, it was third person, and it stayed that way. And it never fully shifted back. It still hasn't. It's gotten better. But even when it comes to how I view my day-to-day life, it's still not from my eyes entirely. It's still kind of like from other people's perspectives. I view myself through other people's eyes. So Mm -hmm. I'll jump straight to somebody else's perspective and try to view myself through them. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's so hard for me to just be in my own body, in my own consciousness, in my own mind, but I'm getting, I'm getting there slowly. Well, that, that saddens my heart at six years old. You had no way to put any flesh on that experience, did you? No. It just happened? Yep. Yeah, that, that at the time, it wouldn't have, and probably, again, like I said, it wouldn't have even 10, 10, 10 years ago, but now that just hurts my heart to know that you experienced something and had nothing, nothing to have, no words for it, no one to really talk it out with. Nobody that would pursue your heart, so to speak, and say, you know, Chris, what, what's, what, what was that like? You know, what were you feeling? My mom tried. She did try, but she was very aggressive. And she didn't really know how. She didn't know yeah. how to ask. She could right. tell something was wrong. Right. She could tell that things weren't okay. And I think, I mean, it's, and that's, it took me a long time to realize that my parents actually loved me. I didn't, I didn't really know. And so, cause there was a point later on in life when in my teens, when my dad directly told me that he'd wish that I had died when I was six, that having me as a kid from that point forward was just way too much of a burden for him. And, and, and that was part of the reason why I had a, I had a, I wanted to kill myself as a teenager. Um, but my mom, but my mom made the effort. She always did try at least to try to let me know that I was wanted, but it felt just more like smothering. <laughs> So wait, back up. So your dad like told you that like, like he was mad at you and said, yeah, that's a whole other thing. That's a whole other thing. No, it's that's horrible. Like, I'm sorry that happened to you. You know, that shouldn't have happened to a girl having to hear that from her dad. Yeah. Especially daughters hearing it from their dad. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not an off subject. But what movie <laughs> stirs emotions? Of every movie you've ever seen, what movie stirs emotions? Oh, or, could, so or, many. Or, or, or just draws you back into it time and time again? It's a great question. Do you have one? Yeah. I just realized it last night. What is it? Legend of Tarzan. Really? Yes, the last one. What, what year is that made? Uh, 90. Nine, it's got uh, the gal from the Suicide Squad. Um, what is she in? Blonde chick. Uh, she's Jane. Margot That's Robbie. Right. Yes, yeah, Margot Robbie. She's Jane. Oh, really? Yeah. It's it's. I don't think I've seen it then. It's it's Damn, good. There's a I got serious body envy on Tarzan too, man. The guy's. <laughs> but it for That's me it's, and I I. I think I got to watch it a couple more times, but it's the fact that Tarzan was loved so unconditionally, so beyond his mm. ability, both first, he, his parents in the movie, his parents were killed in a, they were, they were, had a, 
shipwreck and landed on this island. And his mom died of some sickness, and his dad was killed by the apes. And Tarzan was raised. But to see the mother ape raise Tarzan, and the love and the nurturing and the caring she had for him, and then um, also his relationship with his wife Jane, it was the. It, I think it's just that feeling of being loved regardless, mm. no matter the background. And you know, I mean, if you, you, you think about it, guys got to have some issues. You know, of course it's a movie, but you can romanticize it to think the guy had his issues, but yet his wife was there, you know, loved him. And my wife loves me, but it's just that I can watch it. And just hit me last night. Mm. One of the things, uh, this guy I listened to, Dan, or uh, not Allender, um, Adam Young out of Colorado. He says, find those movies that move you emotionally, either anger, either uh, tears, whatever, and then watch them and watch them and then try and figure out, okay, that's triggering something. There's something there. There's a wound. Mm-hmm. That's why I was asking if there's a movie connected that would emotionally stir you. Yeah, is there one that... Uh... There, yeah, I've had quite a few. Um, the Shack for me was when the movie yep. came out, yep. when I saw the yep. movie, because I read the book and, and seeing the movie was really... I read the book, but I haven't seen the movie. Yeah, it, it really moved me. And they didn't fuck it up, which I was glad. <laughs> when I read the book, like there's some stuff in there that's going to piss off a lot of popular Christian culture. Mm-hmm. Like, like uh, you know, Mac meeting Jesus and Jesus saying, "What you think I'm a Christian?" <laughs> I love that part, and it's in the movie. Like I thought they'd cut that out of the movie for sure, but they didn't. And just that uh, there, there's that scene where uh, it bring me to tears just thinking about it. That scene where he's uh, he's like cursing God, you know, like where the fuck were you? You know, and, I, and I've been through that. I mean, I've been just sitting in recovery groups or, or groups at Mars Hill and, and having all these kind of Christian guys and all their, you know, like, where the fuck was God when I was raped? You know, and just who oh, he was on the cross or whatever. And, and I remember just shouting. I, I find it funny now, but I was really upset and agitated. And I'm like, three fucking days you give me three fucking days you pin me to a cross and kill me that that i'll take it you know i trade in a fucking minute and you know, they didn't really know what to do with that you know the group leaders like like scratching his head and, and uh it was they just kind of experienced it but that that scene in that film where he's you know he's saying where were you like you left me all alone and she goes, I, I, you, I was right there with you the whole time, you know. Um, yeah, that that broke me a little bit, you know. Just that idea that, you know, being alone but not alone, whatever yeah. that is. I've always felt that, I guess. Not always, but there's something else there. I think that's what it means to be human. Forever alone, but never alone. Yeah. What was your movie, Kristen? Mm. I do have a whole, I have a bunch of movies, but 
I think what immediately comes to mind, it's a book instead of a movie. And it's just because I'm reading it right now. It's a, it's a book called Ender's Game. Have any of you ever heard of it? Yes. Yep. By Orson Scott Card. Yeah, it's, I'm rereading it for the third time now. I think I'd, I read it as a teenager. I read it in my 20s. And now I'm writing it in my 30s. And it is, it's just, it's, Orson Scott Card does such a good job of portraying a child's perspective in the middle of an adult agenda. Uh, have you guys read it? Like, or are you just familiar with it? I'm I just not, familiar I'm with not... it. Okay, sorry, what'd you say, Ross? I haven't heard of it, no. What, oh, you haven't? Okay. Premise, have you read it, Chuck? I've not read the book, I've seen the okay. movie. Okay. Um, oh, the movie's terrible. <laughs> yeah, it is. There's some good things that they pulled out of the book. Not many though. Oh, no. it broke my heart. I was so excited for the movie. And then, and then, and then I died a little bit. So it's a um, like a sci-fi yeah. book, Russ. Yeah. Um, they this kid is just a great mind, and they go genocide a alien race. <laughs> yes, that. So I, yes, that's the so short, that's the that short is a very short version of it. So this very <laughs> this this brilliant kid who's the third child in a family that's only allowed to have two. And so they specifically, the, the, the government basically requests that this family have another child because their kids are so brilliant and they want to see if they can actually produce a military commander-like child who is both commanding and structured, but also brilliant and soft. Somebody who's so sweet and they get it. They find that in a child. And so when he's really little, they take him up to this space battle school where they just destroy him as a human oh yeah they they, they they do very strategically the adults the adults very strategically on purpose put a target on this kid's back to make sure that all the other kids just not just hate him but and not just beat him up but make his life a living hell on a regular basis and so he grows up completely alone and he just has to figure out how to survive. And he does, he does, he figures out how to do it. And I won't, I won't say the whole plot because there's actually a pretty incredible twist at the end that, uh, that makes the whole thing just genius. But it's, it's such a relatable experience because the kid's name is Ender and he ends up just approaching this whole experience like it's a game. Mm-hmm. But that's his genius is the fact that he can approach it like it's a game. Because if he couldn't do that, then he wouldn't be the military commander genius that they need him to be. <laughs> it's gross. Well, it's his dissociation. Yeah. Yeah. That makes and him brilliant. How, yeah, that's how he's able to cope with what he's mm-hmm. doing from yeah. day to day and cope with the the bullshit of everyone else giving him, like, you know, making his life a living hell. Yeah. He just turns into a game. And it's, he turns it into a game that he always wins some way, somehow, even when he loses really badly. And it's a violent book. It's not, they don't pull back. It, as much as it's told from a child's point of view, it's not a kid's book. It is, it's very brutal. And they don't, they don't pull punches. They just, from the very beginning, they just talk about who Ender is, how he was commissioned by the government, and how he's so unwanted by everybody in his family except except his sister. His sister is the only one that really gives him shit. But his parents don't even really want him because of 
whole bunch of reasons. And they just are brutally honest all the way through. Wow. And it's just a, it's a good story. It's just a really honest, well-told, <clears throat> profound story. And that, that I really connect to because, and they also, Orson Scott Card does a good job of describing Ender's emotions, which is, it's so, it's so painful because he, he really is just this really soft, sweet kid who wants to be loved. And aren't we all? Yeah. No, that's exactly actually. What I was <laughs> no, no. You, don't, you don't. You don't have any. You don't have any parts in you that are a soft, sweet kid. Oh, I'm not saying me. Like, I'm just saying know. that there are some people that aren't that soft. No, I think everybody is when it comes. Do to, you? I yeah. I think everybody has a part that is that. Yeah, and it I might be naive agree. to believe that or hold that. Maybe it's a hope. Um, so I guess I'm thinking that I, I think you're right and that everybody has a soft spot, but their softest spot may be compared to like your or my softest spot oh, is, yeah. is not exist. right. It's on a completely different plane. Yeah. And so like it's that level of vulnerability that some people just can't reach that deep. Yeah. And so that I guess that that's what I'm thinking that I agree with you that yes, everybody has a soft spot. Everybody does. And everybody wants to be connected with and seen. But some people just go far, far softer than others. And those are the ones that have the hardest time surviving. But if they do, they tend to have a fair amount of wisdom. The hard part is figuring out how to translate it into words. I'm curious about the, the split you guys are talking about, the split. Like, I, I get that, you know. And to some extent, I've experienced it. Um, but as far as it being like, you know, what, what people would think of like Sybil or schizophrenic or, you know, which isn't even schizophrenia. Right. But mm -mm. that's, those are some of the popular ideas of it that you're, you know, you mean DID, the old school idea of multiple personalities dissociative yeah, yeah. identity disorder. Yeah. 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 And some people listening could be like, Oh, like you guys are, you know, I don't know, multiple personalities. The ID is still very people. taboo. But it, it, how much of this is metaphor? Like I like I get what Chuck's saying. Like I I, I agree with that. Oh, it's real. No, it's real. Like, like yeah, none, of it's, none of it's metaphor. I mean, I have. No, it's not. Oh, I know. Yeah, right. right. No, it's not metaphorical. Metaphors yeah. make it easy to communicate, but right. the reality of it is very cold. Right. Yeah, it's. When you were when you were describing your six-year-old near-death experience, it reminded me of my first time I left my body. You remember it? Oh yeah, it's it's probably my most vague memory as a kid. Hmm. Um, it also isn't my earliest memory, um, but it's just the most. I think I just identify with it so, like just day to day to day on the piece of leaving my body that it just, I'll never forget it. Um, it was such a horrible time. I mean, my dad was beating the shit out of me and I left and I was like, wait, it doesn't hurt anymore. Yep. Like this is, and I guess Brilliant. that's why I've always been at peace with any of my I old shit that I'm going to die. If I do this, I'm going to do it anyway. It's like, Oh no, I, I know what that is. Like I, that's, and when I, you know, don't die, that's why I'm disappointed. Um, 
just all pain was gone. It was wonderful. Yep. Anyway. That's what I've always pictured death to be too. It's just an absence of pain. I don't actually know if that's true. That's just what I've pictured. Yeah. Because once it starts, yeah, it doesn't. Sorry, what was that, Russ? <laughs> I said all the weird stories I've read about it and people that have explained it. Because it's an interesting phenomenon, you know. It's, in, but a lot of people, you know, like that was the thing. It's like there's no no more pain, no more suffering, just peace and light. And then, bam, they're back in their bodies. And one, one person described it as, um, like, if you could imagine taking a like a big onesie and throwing it in a mud puddle full of shit and then having to put it back on when she came to consciousness, realizing she was back in her body. Like that's the metaphor she used, like putting on a, a nasty suit of dirt and, and filth, you know, well, and even just think about how other that is like, like to put something on that cumbersome means that you're it, you're not actually it. It's just encasing you. And so yep. it's almost as though there's just this, this big mud pit of a body is, is in holding you in a cage. And that's what yep. feels so awful because you can't, because especially for a body that has unresolved fight or flight, that's still sitting in your nervous system. Uh, that's what I suspect at least is what that is, is that it's just holding that in your core and your body acts like a cage. And what needs to happen is that you need to have that full ripple effect of of the fight or flight being released through your body, but right. it looks like demon possession, which is why people don't let it happen. Because once it actually starts moving, you you look and feel like an animal and society will not allow that. They're like, oh. absolutely not. We medicate those people. We put those people in the hospital. Those are the ones that we commit because we are too scared of what, who they are and what they do. Yeah, and then they religious the, people- They trigger sorry. the fuck out of you. Yeah, yeah. Well, it scares people. Yeah, it yeah. does. It scares them. Because what it looks like is in the midst of you releasing that, that harbored fight or flight from your body, especially if it's old. Cause I know for me, whenever that, whenever I've really started let it, the stuff, like stuff that's almost 30 years old come out of my nervous system. What happens is, is like my, my body will just naturally go rigid and my, my shoulders will throw themselves back. And I usually have to be on the floor mm -hmm. and I'll arch my back up and my neck and you start shaking really, really hard and you usually start moaning and making really loud vibrating noises that come out of your chest. And it looks like demon possession and it scares the shit out of people. And so they don't let it happen. RTT, rapid transformation therapy. Have you, right. ever, yeah. have you read, yeah. well, have you read, um, oh, Marion, Marion, fuck, what's that lady's name? Talbot. No, she, she runs. She runs White Raven up in yeah, Alaska. Yeah. So I'm not I only know the... I I only know about White Raven through your guys's podcast. That's the only thing I know about it. Oh man, but I haven't go, read the book. Go. You I've wanted see, to. You want to see some to. exorcisms? I go do away. actually. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Yeah, it they is... really encourage that. that that's mm -hmm. and and I I did some sessions with uh, Amy or one a session with Amy and. Uh, and, and yeah, it was something like that. But I remember that being afraid of, you know, what's going on. Like I could feel something inside wanting to, you know, move. 
see that's another thing that getting into this the religious aspect of it too is, is thinking thinking back to that that metaphor of the woman putting on the the dirty garment um so that, that matches up with a lot of popular christian culture that your body is somehow bad right yeah, yeah. like <laughs> your body is you're Filthy. gonna leave your body it's just a shell it's just mm. it's just your space suit and you're gonna you're gonna go up to be with jesus and, and you're gonna be you know this little ball of anyway like i had to really peel back a lot of that too you know yeah, yeah. well because your body is your root system and without your roots you're nothing you yeah. don't exist. It doesn't matter how how solid of a tree you are or how beautiful your leaves are. If you don't have roots, you're fucked. Like that's it. And yeah. so yeah. no, it drives me crazy when people deny the the importance of the body. Yeah. See, I don't I don't know if I would agree with some of that though. Okay. Because it I've left my body. And I've mm, a long for a long time like not we're not talking like seconds or minutes hours days um I'm and i willing, don't what's that willingly i'm willing to bet that there was still a tendril there was still a part of you that was rooted into your body you just had no conscious connection to it at all potentially because in, I mean, I in prove, order I prove it otherwise the only way for you not to be anchored in your body is for you to die so that's why when I say it's the root system, you might just be hanging in by one root, yeah. which is a little precarious, but like you're still in it. And so, but I mean, the idea is to try to be full force, full body in all the roots, but who wants to do that? Especially if you want to be dead. Nobody. <laughs> yeah. I remember uh, during the session with, with Amy, Seth and Amy, mostly Amy, um, being in the, in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, um, which I don't remember, you know, until that, whatever that was, that session, but being out of body, like, like looking down on myself. And as some of those stories I've heard from near death experiences, like looking down on me and there's like some CP dude doing CPR or something or trying to get me to breathe or start my heart or whatever the fuck he was doing and going, Oh shit, that's me you know, almost being surprised mm -hmm. at it. And then, and then freaked out, like freaked the fuck out right afterwards. Like the first feeling is, whoa, that guy looks familiar. Oh shit. That's me. And then, Oh fuck. What am I doing up here? You know, all of that going on just, just a few seconds. I remember getting up a few times during that session and cause I'm laying down and I've got like rocks on my chakra points or whatever it was you know and i'm like fuck this like i'm not sure if i can do this you know i've had those with emdr too where i'm was in an emdr session and i'm holding buzzers and i'm just like no i, I don't think i can do this anymore out of it yeah and then my my therapist you know thank god for her too and even canceling another session possibly because she just like i can't leave you here like we need to go back in and and, and finish this she didn't use those words but that was the idea yeah. yeah yeah but i remember you know in some of those sessions also seeing myself being raped as a nine-year-old boy just outside 
just back over here in the back of the room, you know, looking down on this. I wasn't dead. But, but you, you weren't horrible. there either. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's, that's the space in between. There, I feel like there has to be some kind of space in between. But it's not, it's like, uh, you ever seen the movie, The Princess Bride? Yeah. Uh, mostly dead. <laughs> no, it's like, no, if you're mostly dead, I, mean, I, I believe that most things are on a spectrum. Uh, probably everything is on a spectrum, if you really think about it hard enough. And death is probably on a spectrum too. And, and if you have some kind of a near death experience, so on a scale of one to a hundred, hundred being you're absolutely dead, and 99 being, I'm almost dead. <laughs> but and now I can't stop thinking of Princess Bride. Oh, it's a great movie, though. <laughs> it's a great movie. Have fun storming the castle, boys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, Billy Crystal's fantastic in that movie. Yes. No, that, that makes sense. Well, and if you get to 99%, but then you come back, you're like, damn it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, part of you is that like, was the wrong way. Yeah, <laughs> it's not the way that I wanted to go. And then you can't help but feel a sense of somewhat like just frustration and resentment because you just you just know you're not supposed to be here. And then, or at least that's how my experience felt for a long, long time until I decided that I would. I, I'm here. I feel like I'm on borrowed time. I might as well live it. I might as well do with it what I can and. When I eventually die, thank God. I had a conversation with Derek about this probably about a year ago. And I just told him, I was like, you know what? Sometimes life is just so long. He's like, what the long. hell are you talking about? He's like, no, it's not. It's so short. I was like, no, it's really, really long. <laughs> you have no idea. Every day I wake up and I'm like, is this the day I'm going to die? Please let it be the day I'm going to die. And then I'm like, at the end of the day, I'm like, damn it. I got to go to bed again. <laughs> Then I have to get up and have to do it again tomorrow. It's like, oh shit, it's exhausting. It's so long, and and I I I can imagine the blessing of viewing life as short, and maybe I'll get there someday. You know, being able to say, yeah, you know, I mean, if I live to be eighty years old, which sounds really long, but if I do, because I have longevity in my family. <laughs> Like maybe I'll look back and be like, wow, that was really fast. But I'm guessing that I'll probably look back and be like, wow, I'm just really tired. <laughs> really tired. Because I'm tired now. Have you guys seen that on Netflix at Life After Death? Um, oh, the, the British comedian. He's an atheist. Oh, maybe I did see it. Ricky Gervais. Yeah, yeah, Ricky yeah. Gervais. That was great, actually. I saw yeah, it the yeah. season. <laughs> There's that one because he works for this little you know small town newspaper and they go to see this woman who just turned like 101 or something like that mm -hmm. how is it it's fucking horrible <laughs> amen sister amen <laughs> like what do you think it is all the time i well like, and all my friends are dead everybody i know is dead like it would just it would be awful and you're yeah. just waiting you know what's you know what would be worse have you ever seen the show uploaded yes yeah that would be worse would it oh yeah like uh because your consciousness just is forced to continue forever and ever. Yeah. Oh, that would be that would be. But they were. But at least they like they're in a place where they they can hit the oxytocin button. If you pay enough. That's true. If you pay enough. <laughs> if you don't, then you're screwed. That's right. I forgot about that. You do. It's all. It's all there is a, uh, there's a series on Netflix, The Kaminsky Method. 
Yeah. Michael Douglas and uh, Alan Arkin. The older guy is in it. And Alan they talk Arkin, about yeah. this, about the older guy. He goes, his wife passes away. He goes, what do I have? Well, we have each other. No, we don't. She's gone. But it's just all the travails of, of being old mm-hmm. and hurting in places you didn't know you had. Mm-hmm. And that's true. I, I realize that more and more. Well, I, re- I understand the tired part, too. What would be worse, uploaded or uh, Russian doll, living the same day that you die? Russian or, doll. <laughs> have you ever? Yeah, you think so? Yeah, I think uh, I would have to say that. Russian doll sounds very worse. Yeah. yeah but that's, a, that's a cool it's a cool metaphor russian doll because i think that's for me it's a it's a metaphor of uh, as a person who's used to struggle with addiction just kind of doing uh, being at the same level of consciousness every day and the story not moving forward you know? mm-hmm. yeah it sounds horrible yeah yeah well because i think the reason why russian doll sounds so much worse is because of the lack of control versus yeah. with the other one, I already forgot the name of it. What was it? Groundhog Day? No, not Groundhog Upload. Day. Up- Upload. Upload. Yeah, uploaded. Oh. At least with Upload, uploaded, yeah. there's the perception of control, even if it's not reality. I would, I would rather have the illusion than, than not. I want to pretend that I have control versus not. But, but Russian doll would manifest the most growth. So yeah. you got to yeah. pick and choose. Because it gets into that dual consciousness right like it's a it's a consciousness thing that moves you know her and and uh bill murray <laughs> right bill out murray. of their out of their situation bill so, murray in, in groundhog bill murray's in groundhog day yeah we, no i know but i wasn't sure if we we're talking about groundhog day or uh, yeah well they both have the same kind oh. of consciousness dual consciousness story right like like he moved yes. from his was funnier though yeah, his is funnier. <laughs> Hers is a little darker, a and, but darker. but I, it's well done. You know, it's well done how they they kind of that in between place that we were talking about earlier is exposed, and you can't control that. Like on the outside, your ego can't do it. Maybe that's what those stories touch on. You think? Probably. There's something that when I was reading these books and, and on near-death experiences and stuff, there, something that kept came, coming up was dual consciousness. Um, like that that moment, right, when your life flashes before your eyes, where time really doesn't exist. I had an accident w- where I work, where I, I ran myself over with a truck. True story. So um, I let the truck off this jack I was down on the floor underneath the truck, lowering the truck down off this jack, didn't realize that the truck was in reverse. And I was on the back axle. So, oh shit, here come, like the wheels catch when I let it down and I'm, I grab the axle. And for an instant, there's that, that thing, right? That dual consciousness thing where I'm like, oh, this is how I die, you know? And then everything, you know, just everything went pause and like that weird sense of the things I didn't do. Oh shit. Like I'm going to die here in this greasy auto shop, like this horrible end <laughs> of the story. It just sh- weird shit like that is running through my brain in a fraction of a second. Everything happened really fast. Um, but yeah, that's, 
Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, like you're describing that you fractured right there. You, instead of being in your body, feeling the pain of it, you just were able to kind of pull out, pull back into a different part of yourself that could perceive it from a safer point of view. And so if you did die, you could feel the sadness and the frustration of it, but that's as far as it would go. You didn't necessarily have to feel the deep suffering. Yeah. It's just the brain being intelligent. It's just, it's the brain knowing that it's highly threatened and it wasn't really expecting a near death experience that day, Yeah. but it's ready to go at any moment. Right, and right. so once you get there, especially if you've had trauma in your past, I mean, it just, it just makes your brain hypervigilant. So you're looking for other situations similar to it. Yeah. And so once you find it, you just fracture like a kaleidoscope. I yeah. think, you know, as I've gotten older, I think those experiences is what, what is the last thing I said? You know, what was the last thing I did? Mm -hmm. Cause you hear, well, and see, that was, wasn't that in the, in the shack when he left? He was mad when he left. I'm trying to remember. No. <clears throat> that, that, that theory is just pops into my head from some movie I've seen where something happens and he's thinking back, shit, I wish I hadn't done that. You know, if this is the last thing I ever do, I wish it wasn't. I wish that's not what I had said or that's not the words that I say. Right. You know, it, when I was younger, it didn't. Those thoughts were never there. It's a different way. Makes sense. Beating yourself. Yeah. Up, like right before you die. <laughs> right. Yeah, when you had those, those close, close call experiences. Well, those are the things that can definitely change your life because it it gives you it's a pivot point and it gives you a redirection because you realize that how you've been living your life up until that point isn't really yeah. how you want to continue to live. Yeah. And so then you have a, you're, you're faced with a choice and it's a potent enough choice that usually it's strong enough to really be able to, right. to redirect you, but it, it still makes it hard because it's there, there's just something innate about human experience that we want, we want our experience and our existence to mean something to somebody, some way, somehow, and we want it to mean something to ourselves. But I don't know if we really know how to pinpoint that. We talk a lot about legacy, you know, what it means to live a life that leaves behind a legacy, but even that is complicated because I'm not even entirely sure what that means. Yeah. I just know that it's important to every single one of us to feel as though that we're relevant. And I don't, I don't know if we can actually fully achieve that, I think. But I still think it's something worth pursuing. Yeah, that's where some of the stories like Scrooge, right? And comes out or, or, or It's a Wonderful Life, those Christmas movies where, you know, yeah, that's why I always wish we had funerals for people before they died. Hmm. You know, because well, Russ with Leo. Yeah. Leo had no. I don't. I wonder if Leo really knew how much he meant to so many people. Yeah. Really. You know, and even us. I mean, we take each. We take the lives that we live, the people we interact with, on a day-to-day -day basis. I think we take it for granted, not understanding the full impact that we're having on people's lives. I mean, I have kids coming back from my old young life days. I had this one gal that came back into my wife's and I life. Uh, she uh, came, we were out at Olive Garden a couple of years ago eating. She came in and she just started crying when she saw us. And my daughter was, and son-in-law was with me. She goes, you guys need to, you, you two need to know your mom and dad, Stephanie, saved my life. And I had no flipping idea. 
but it's just that we were there. So I think, you know, it's easy to get so caught up in, in the drama of our lives that we negate the impact that we're having. You know, we all have impact. I mean, even the, even you three, you've impacted my life. And Kirsten, it's just been a short time, but you've impacted my life. And that's one of the things I try to tell people more of too, you know, that, hey, you impacted my life. I remember Russ, we met that guy in your backyard that called the cops that day you died. Uh, I can't remember what his name was now. But we you introduced him as the guy that saved your life. And I said, hey, I thank you for doing that, for the role that you've played in my life. And that's one of the things I think that we need to be more aware of. Anyway. Oh, that was really well said, Steve. That was. What's that? That was really well said. That was. So again, it's getting older and, and thinking about that stuff. Yeah, it's good. Oh, I I really appreciate it. I, I mean, just I appreciate the thought and the, like you said, the intention that you're working really hard and just being very intentional about yeah. what you say and what you do and, and how you choose to live your life and what's actually really important. And it's, I mean, that, that's the benefit of a near-death experience is that if you can get past the trauma of it, somewhere in there is something good. Yeah. yeah. There's a reorientation of uh -huh. value. Yeah. Right. Pretty powerful one, actually. Yeah. 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 Things that, I love that, that in the movie Soul, the Pixar movie Soul, where, where, you know, yeah, like he's kind of describing it or, or the, the, and there's that guy, remember the hedge fund manager guy, like he just uh -huh. like typing away on the computer, all of a sudden he realizes this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> just destroys the computer, then he runs around uh -huh. way off his desk. It doesn't matter, none of this matters. Yeah. It's, it's funny because it's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the shit that we value, like like what you're saying, Steve, that that's is such a reorientation of the the near death yeah. experience. I think that's a good place to land the plane. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Punkology. Welcome to the world of tomorrow. Hey, help a punk rock robot out. Scratch my itch by hitting that subscribe button. Like to join us in having more ears hear this punk sound? Please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or wherever you hear this fucking podcast. Because millions of people in Western culture are undoubtedly divided and dis disconnected. Because most people keep yelling at each other. To where, listening has become the punk, rebellious or counterculture thing to do. Because talking about the elephant in the room has become more like looking for a lost penny under the couch cushion that most don't care to find. We would love for you to join us as a co-producer. You can support this content at Patreon. That's Patreon with an E. Patreon.com slash Punk Theology. Yes, it. Yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. Or I'll click the patron link at punktheology.net. Punk Theology is the property of Digital Audio Project, a limited liability corporation, who is responsible for its content.